Let's turn again our Bibles, please, back to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings and chapter 19. I'm going to read again now verse number 10. The Word of God says, these words of Elijah, of course, I have been very jealous of the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Let's bow together, please, and seek God's face and his help again as we come around the word. Eternal God, we look to thee. We realize, O oh God, that we are the people of God living in new covenant days. And we have to discern your will in this passage with care and precision. And give help, O oh God, in the understanding of it. And then in a, in a proper application to your hearts. Speak to our souls today. We need a word from thee. We need thy presence, O oh God. We need you to revive and stir our hearts. We realize, O oh God, we are prone to wonder. We're prone to leave the God we love. So bind us. Lead us with the word today. May the Spirit of God apply it to our hearts. And may each and every one of us here, may we leave mindful, thoughtful, realize we've met with thee. And we've heard you speak to your souls. Give us grace and help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have heard the term historical revisionism. It's a term often used to describe the illegitimate distortion of the historical record. So that certain events appear in a more or less favorable light. History is only as good as those who tell the account. Again, you think of your own history in the last uh, 250 years or plus, and you think of other times and across the world, and again, there's all manner of historical revisionism going on in our present day and generation. It's the interpreting of history in a blinkered fashion. I mention that because I want to be clear that I am not seeking to engage in such in our studies here of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. But I do recognize that uh, perhaps some of the thoughts in this chapter thus far are perhaps somewhat new, or at least unfamiliar. And certainly hearing and discussing with some of you uh, at the door, uh, perhaps these are things you've not thought about in the past. And what has happened, I believe, is that assumptions, often well-meaning assumptions, have been made regarding these events. And as the assumptions pass from generation to generation, then they come to be factual. Assumptions become fact when they are perpetuated. Falsehoods become fact when they are perpetuated. Go on any day to Facebook and you'll find that's always the case. Things that are not true, if they're repeated enough, have the idea of being factual. Well, I'm trying to be careful here. I don't want to fall foul again of historical revisionism on undermining what has been said over the years. Much has been said and made of Elijah's feelings when actually we're not told how he feels in this chapter. We're told what he says what he does, what he prays, but not how he feels. And the tendency is then we consider how we would feel. And we read our feelings into his feelings, and then we interpret his words and his actions according to what we think his feelings are, which are based on what we think our feelings would be. We may not be accurate at all. Thus, I'm trying to 
as clearly as possible and carefully, look at the text anew and use the text to base our opinions of this great man of God, a hero of mine, a hero of the faith, a man who never died, and a man who stood upon the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and his Lord. You see, look at the facts, and then draw proper conclusions. And the fact before us today is verse number 8. In light of the supernatural strength given to him by the food, he goes to Horeb. Again, I mentioned the, time, the distances here. 100 miles to Beersheba, then the wilderness, and then a further 200 miles across to Mount Horeb. He goes there 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that food, and he arrives, verse 8, at Mount Horeb, Horeb, the Mount of God. This is absolutely vital in understanding what follows. And so we've got to take part of a, or take part of a little bit of a Bible study regarding the significance of Mount Horeb up to this point. What's Horeb all about? Well, turn back, first of all, to Exodus chapter 3. And again, I'm, I'm going to take the time here. We're going to go through several passages so that you understand that when Elijah goes to Mount Horeb, he's going there for a reason. I've said already that that journey to Mount Horeb is clearly in the will of God. The angel's concern, the Lord's concern, is that he does not have strength to make that journey. But that journey must be made because it is God's will that Elijah gets there. That he gets to Mount Horeb in the will and the purpose of God. Not in running scared of Jezebel, but in running in obedience to his Lord. He's going to the place that God has appointed for him to go to. Now, Horeb first comes to your minds here in chapter 3 and verse number 1. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. Horeb's part of this mountainous range that we know as the Sinai region. And at this mountain of God, verse number 2, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. God reveals himself, one of the most important portions of God's word. I am the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Who shall I say? I am. The great I am. The self-sufficiency of God makes himself known, reveals himself to Moses in the bush that burned and was not consumed. That immediately puts Horeb and a light in this time when God is coming to meet his people. Then you get a chapter 17 of Exodus. Again, we've come through this account and we've been seeing the people of God and they've, they've been redeemed, they've been rescued, the Passover has been slain. And they're in the wilderness. And now we find themselves in chapter 17 and they're murmuring. They're in Rephidim and there is no water for the people to drink. And the Lord says to Moses, verse number 5, Go on before the people and take with thee the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smote the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Again, this place, God revealed himself to Moses. And now, again, we're not necessarily not necessarily the exact same location, but still emphasized as being Horeb, the Mount of God. And now God's going to show the people that grace and justice meet 
and the rock that is Christ Jesus. That as the rock is smitten, so out comes the grace of God. Despite their sin, despite their murmurings, God is willing to provide for the people of God and to preserve them in his grace. Leaving aside the spiritual application, just note again the significance of this place. And then when you go across to Deuteronomy, you will see in the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy, Horeb is the place that is used for the name where the covenant was made and broken. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the verse number 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. And you see the significance here. And sometimes we think of of the law and Sinai. And we forget that Horeb is part of that Sinai region. And God is bringing his word and his covenant with the people of God through Moses on Horeb. Chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 9, the verse number 8. Where it says, also in Horeb, ye provoked the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord is angry with you to have destroyed you. Again, Moses is again recounting the time when the tables are broken because they've sinned in the calf. Again, Psalm 106 says this, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. God appears in Horeb. God reveals himself in Horeb, in the bush and in the rock. God makes covenant in Horeb. The people of God rebel against that covenant in Horeb. And then over in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. And the verse number 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. Beside the covenant which he had made with them in Horeb. Again it's emphasizing again this is not a new covenant. This is a repetition of that which was revealed in Horeb. It's God re-entering covenant despite the sins of the people in the wilderness. God is still committed to their good. And we go back to Horeb again. The significance of this place. Again, even in Malachi 4, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb. And then with light of all of that, then turn back to 1 Kings. Now to chapter 8. If you see the significance of Horeb in the times of Moses, again, you're seeing how Solomon reflects upon that in 1 Kings chapter 8. And this really allows us to go forward in our, in our thinking. 1 Kings chapter 8 and the verse number 9. There was nothing in the ark, see the two tables of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb when the children, or when the Lord, sorry, made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, I'm going to emphasize now that what we think with Horeb, we should think about covenant. The God who makes covenant. Who? The great I am, the God of the burning bush. It is this singular, sufficient, eternal, living God that makes covenant with the people of God at Horeb. The same God who makes gracious covenant with them through the mediator, the rock that has smitten Christ himself. It's again through Christ the covenant is made. And then the covenant that is the giving of God's guidance to them in the law. It's all done at Horeb. And again, just for the details, you'll see the word covenant there is in italics. You say, well, are we right to put that word in there? Yes, we are. 
The verb that's used there to made is to cut. It's a blood-cut covenant that God made with the people there in Horeb. So thus, when you think of Horeb, you must think of the covenant made with people through Moses, a covenant that involved blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. This was so for Elijah. He comes to Horeb and he refers to the covenant, verse number 10. As he stands before God on the mount, he says, the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. And the place is significant. It brings us back to what God has done in the Old Testament people of God through Moses in entering covenant. This is the first time since the giving of the law and the making of the covenant that the recorded history brings us back to Horeb. First time. And all that takes place from God giving Moses the law and the covenant, it's the first time we find ourselves back in the narrative at Horeb. And Elijah is here because God has brought him here. Verse number seven, the journey is too great for thee, but I'm going to bring you there in my will and according to my purpose. Now that background is important to help us then deal with the question of verse number nine. What doest thou here, Elijah? What we'll see again in these verses all the way down to the end of the chapter is we see uh, an alternating dialogue. God invites Elijah to speak. Elijah responds. God reveals himself to Elijah. He responds again. Elijah responds. And then God commissions Elijah in various tasks. It's a dialogue. And in this dialogue, I'm encouraging you to see that Elijah is here serving as God's litigator. He's bringing the charges against the people of God for their covenant breaking. That's what we must see happening here on Mount Horeb. So first of all, please note with me God's invitation to Elijah to speak. That is how I believe we just see the question in verse number 9. What doest thou here, Elijah? Keel and Deleach in their commentary in the Old Testament, they put it this way. This question did not involve a reproof, as though Elijah had nothing to do there. You hear that this question did not involve a reproof, but was simply intended to lead him to give utterance to the thoughts and feelings of his heart. Another commentator puts it this way, the question was put in order to allow of the loaded heart relieving itself by pouring out all its griefs. God's questions are the assurance of his listening ear and sympathizing heart. In the garden to Adam, he says to Adam, where art thou? It's an invitation. It's not an inquiry out of ignorance. It's an invitation for Adam to bring confession and repentance of his sin. Christ, God incarnate, Jehovah incarnate, comes and says, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? An invitation to pray for helps the blind man says, Lord, that I might receive my sight. So for Elijah, God asks Elijah this question, that he might speak. Now, we certainly find it easier to see in the question a note of rebuke. You know, we, we, perhaps with the kids, what are you doing? And there's a sense of accusation and rebuke. You're not what you should be. You're out of place. You must be up to no good. 
That's how we often read this question. At least maybe it's how I read the question. What doest thou here, Elijah? And the idea being, Elijah, are you sure you should be here? That's how we read into, this, into the question. That's not the question. So Elijah, what do you want to do now that you're here? You've come here in my will and by my strength. What do you want to do? It's an invitation for Elijah to speak. Now here, of course, it is a very particular invitation. The context here is, is, is very unique. It's not, it's not our context. But surely it encourages us in the thought again that God is willing to hear. Willing to hear from his children. Very simple thought. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. It almost seems too simple to comment on. We're told to humble ourselves, casting all your care upon him. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence again today. You you know this. Faith goes to God in response to the invitation. It does. And yet for some reason, the children of God, we, we are slow to go to God at his invitation. Sometimes we find ourselves in isolation and loneliness. No one to speak to. No one to confide in. We find ourselves in that situation where really there's no one to, to give us their ear. And we, we, we certainly enjoy the help and the ear of those who are alongside us in the church. But at times we find ourselves isolated and we find ourselves lonely. There's a place that you can go to. You can go to the ear of God. That ear that is purchased for you by Christ Jesus. His blood secures access to the throne of grace. There are some things that are too personal. Fears that we may have, burdens that we carry. We we can't share them. But we can take them to God in prayer. What doest thou here, Elijah? That's God's invitation for Elijah to speak. Secondly, we should note Elijah's response then. His response in verse number 10, Elijah is unburdening his heart before God. We've already taken the time to notice his despondency for the sake of God and the people of God. We reckon with that. He understood, again, back, remember back in verse number two, or sorry, verse number uh, four. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. That's a confession that he thought things had changed. The fathers, the promise before, they had not seen a recovery of the people of God to righteousness. They continued going step by step in apostasy. And he's now come to his own thoughts that I've done no better. The results that I expected did not occur. The events in Carmel had made no substantial difference, so he thought. Ahab and Jezebel are still unchanged. The people confessed Jehovah, but with Jezebel still holding sway, that people would follow her and not renew their covenant obligations. You want proof of that? Turn across to chapter 21. And in chapter 21, verse 11 through 14, we find that Elijah, or sorry, we find that Jezebel still holds sway over the people. Verse 11, And the men of his city, even the elders and nobles, 
who were the inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them. She still holds sway in the land. They still obey her. And this is an issue with, with Naboth, and we'll come to that in a future study. Thus Elijah brings the charges. And when you see the charges he brings in verse number 10, as God's litigator, please note, first of all, he is suitable to bring the charge. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Again, we might find ourselves charging Elijah here with pride. Really, Elijah? You're you going to say, you're going to stand before God and say that? Well, again, it's worth noting that after meeting God in verse number 13, he says the very same thing in verse number 14. Yes, he puts a mantle across his face. He's humble before God. But what he's doing at the beginning of verse number 10 is simply stating truth. A statement like that, it's, it's binary. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. That's either true or false. And it is, of course, true. Where do we get the idea of this sinful pride? He doesn't claim perfection, but he states what is true. He stands before Ahab and brings judgment. He brought the fire of God down upon Carmel and proceeded to destroy the prophets of Baal. There's lots and lots of evidence that Elijah has indeed been very jealous of the Lord God of hosts. The word speaking of his zeal, his, his urgency to serve God as God has called him to do. We're uncomfortable with someone describing themselves in that manner. We are. Yet it's not without similar events in the word of God. He's simply stating that he's the right man to bring the charges. He fulfills the principle of scripture that those who bring the charge must be free of the offense. He without sin, let him cast the first stone. Again, just a quick line sideways when it comes to the church of Christ. We're told in Galatians chapter 6, that those who bring the word of rebuke are to be those who are themselves spiritual. The Bible does give us certain responsibilities regarding judging and rebuking one another, but we must do so as those who are indeed spiritual. Here we find ourselves on Mount Horeb with Elijah, and we're on covenant ground, and it's only right and proper that the one who brings the charge is themselves free of guilt. I think here we see a foreshadowing of Christ. Who's the one that's going to bring the charge on that great and terrible day? The day when Christ returns. God who appointed a day in which Christ will judge the world in righteousness by the man that either ordained, that's Sykes chapter 17. Christ is the one who's ordained of God to be judge of quick and dead. He is the most suitable litigator and judge of all of humanity. He is without sin, the holy, harmless, undefiled, impeccable Jesus. When it comes to that day and Christ judges you, dear unsaved soul, you will have no words to answer. You cannot charge him of being inconsistent or inaccurate or hypocritical. He is the perfectly suitable Litigator against God's people and against the all of humanity. Elijah, suitable. Then note secondly, please, the charge that is stated. He says to them, they have forsaken the covenant. That is the covenant made with the people through Moses, the mediator. Now to forsake the covenant, 
It is to forsake the commands of God. 1 Kings 18, we're in this chapter, and the verse, sorry, 1 Kings 18, the verse number 18, it says this. I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and hast followed Balaam. And so to forsake the covenant is to forsake the commandments, and it is to forsake the Lord himself. The 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, they are unique. So forsaking God has led them to idolatry. Idolatry involves forsaking God. You, you cannot serve God on idols. If you forsake the Lord, you lead to idolatry. And if you serve idols, you find yourself forsaking God. Still true today. The idols are different, but the same issue. You look back, please, at Deuteronomy chapter 31. You see the language is used here, Deuteronomy chapter 31. It's down in the verse number 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go whoring after the gods of the strangers of the lands, whether they go to be among them, and will, note the words, they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. The people have forsaken the covenant by following and worshipping other gods. The covenant's binding. It's like matrimony. It must be exclusive. And their affections in the covenant must be to God and to God alone. Those in 1 Samuel 12 who sin against God, they say, we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth. It's forsaking God is the issue here. As they break covenant and break God's commandments, so they forsake the Lord himself. Now here again, we've got to understand this, this covenant in the Old Testament is a covenant made in grace. God is gracious in choosing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through Moses, the people of God, and entering covenant with them. And what's the purpose of the covenant? It is to be their God and to enter communion with them. God enters covenant to shower his grace upon them as the water comes from the smitten rock. It's a giving of grace. And so when they forsake the covenant and they forsake God, they're forsaking God's grace. They're turning their back against God. The old covenant is not identical to the new. We now have the Spirit of God, but God's aim is the same. It is to show us his grace. The charge stated, they've forsaken the covenant. That charge is then proven, the substantiation of the charge, twofold. Again, the words of verse number 10, they have thrown down thine altars. We have an instance of that again back in chapter 18 when the altar is rebuilt. An altar thrown down. What to indicate? They have rejected the worship of God, ordained by God, by way of sacrifice. God says, you'll worship me my way and you'll come only by a blood sacrifice. If the altars are thrown down, they're rejecting God's way of worship. They're rejecting the gospel. And they're rejecting the word of God. They've slain my prophets with the sword. We saw this, of course, in Obadiah's case. He's trying to rescue these prophets. Now they come to threaten Elijah's life. It's a rejection again of the ways of God. 
Now Elijah says, I, only I am left. Now, this is either true or false also. Again, there are those who say, well, Elijah's engaging in self-pity here. He's not the only one left. There's again, there's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. But it may well be the case that he sees himself as the only prophet that's left. What happened to the other prophets rescued by Obadiah when Jezebel's after Elijah? We don't know. And it may be the case that Elijah does find himself as the last serving prophet of God. I don't know. It's speculation. I'm not going to go down that line very far. But he may still be right. He's certainly right in saying, I'm the only one on Mount Horeb right now. There's no one else coming and bringing these charges. The people of God have forsaken the covenant. They've thrown down the altars and they've rejected the word of God. And it may be the case that Elijah is aware he's standing his own for God upon the mount. I've taken time. And again, please, thank you for your patience today. Got to set the scene here and see what's happening here. It's a covenant passage. It's dealing with Elijah charging the people for their covenant sin. And then you come to this. Well, how do I apply this? This covenant has been abolished by Christ. He's fulfilled all the types in the shadows. You read Hebrews. The old has passed, making way for the new. So therefore, it is very, very wrong for me or any other pastor to use 1 Kings 19 and berate you in light of this passage. This is unique. It's different. However, these things are written for or in samples and written for our admonition. And to apply this carefully, I must apply it using how the Scripture itself refers to these sorts of things. So I turn your attention, please, to Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll finish up here. Hebrews chapter 8. Well, we'll finish in chapter 10, but Hebrews 8 to begin with. Because I've got to remind you again that the Old Covenant, that's gone. That's chapter 8, verse 13. And that he saith a new covenant, he made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And again, Paul is writing at the time just before AD 70, when the temple's destroyed, overthrown, and there's the final definitive end, if you like, of this old covenant worship and ceremony. God is overthrown. The kingdom of Christ has come. Now that new covenant is different in that back in verse number 8 it says, the days will come when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because, notice what it says, they continued not in my covenant. When? Well, yes, when the calves are built, but also in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, they're continuing not in the covenant. And in the days of Zedekiah, that we've read about in Jeremiah also, all of these days, consistently the people of God do not continue in God's covenant. And God comes and by the power of the Spirit gives us a new heart and new minds. The law is upon our hearts. We have the gift of the Spirit of God. Ezekiel 36. You think of the warnings, the promises of Jeremiah 32. That everlasting covenant of peace secured by Christ's blood. Those who are part of this new covenant cannot break the covenant 
Why? Because of the power of the Spirit of God. It's impossible for a member of God's new covenant to break that covenant. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. All of them knowing God. We cannot take a direct line application. And I, I can't come to cross and an angry preacher and sort of berate all of you regarding your covenant breaking. However, however, this is again given for our admonition. And there is clearly in the Word of God warnings to those who are tempted to turn away from Christ Jesus. And this is where the application does properly come. You see, turn across to chapter 10 of Hebrews. And the language that is used, again, the warning is of apostasy, verse 26 and following. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain faithful looking for judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. So he takes the language of covenant breaking, not, not nationally here, but individually, but the principle still holds. Those who broke the covenant in Moses' day, they died without mercy. And then verse 29, how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified as an unholy thing and had done despite unto the spirit of grace. I understand this is, this is a very, very difficult section. We see the same in earlier chapters of Hebrews and the context here. There were those and they're part of the professed church of Christ and they were tempted to forsake the new covenant, to forsake Christ and go back into the old covenant ceremonies. Those things that were about to vanish away, yet their temptation was to forsake the covenant of God. And the warning comes. Apostasy from truth is seen as a New Testament equivalent to forsaking the covenant in the old covenant. True for false professors. So there is, again, if you like, the, the people of God, they gather together Lord's Day by Lord's Day, and within that company there are wheat and tares, and there are some in the, if you like, the, the visible body of God's people, and they are false, and they apostatize. They, they turn away from the Lord, and yet they've, they've, they've known much blessing. But it's also the case, and this proves it, that Paul and Peter and Jude the apostles of the whole, they warn even true believers about the danger of spiritual apostasy. He uses language of we and ye. If we sin willfully, he's speaking to the, the, the body of Christ together. He can't identify and say, you're false and you're true. There's a recognition of the warning to all of us as God's people. And we're all encouraged to examine our hearts to guard ourselves from covenant breaking. You see, what happens in reality is the people of God, those who profess the name of the Lord, they reject 
God's gospel and worship through sacrifice. You know, there are those, and they once professed and said, my only hope is in the Lord. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, and thy beauty are my glorious dress. They, they worship God through sacrifice and through the altar of God in Christ Jesus. But they have now deconstructed themselves. They, they've, they've forsaken the Lord. They made that profession, but their apostasy is in rejecting the only way of acceptance with God. They turn their back against the gospel. They reject God's word. They deny the word of God and they forsake the Lord. Now, covenant loyalty, and I'm going to close with this application. Covenant loyalty is expressed in covenant community. You see, you cannot read 26 and following Hebrews chapter 10 without noting the previous verses. Let us draw near, verse 22, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully. There is a clear pathway in the word of God to spiritual apostasy. And it begins when the people have a low view of the local church. They disregard the word of God and the worship of God. They disregard the gospel of God. And the local church is held as being something of little importance. I, I, you've, I've said it before, I have a tremendous concern that we're living in a climate of modern Christianity that has a very low view of church community. The church becomes a sermon station that you can watch because all you do is watch a sermon. The church becomes a place where you gather and say hello to people and please your neighbors and then you go away for another day, another week. The church is not that vibrant, living family community where God is and God is worshipped. Church membership looked upon as optional because if church membership is not optional, then I've got to commit to the church. I've got to say, I'm going to be part of this body. No matter what's going to happen, I'm committed to this body. And I'm going to be faithful to it. See, what happens, and this is often the case proven in history, those who turn away from the Lord, their turning from the Lord begins by turning away from a local church. It begins with missing the odd meeting here and there. Things that wouldn't have kept them from the house of God before, now keep them from God's house. It's easier. It's easier to miss the house of God. It begins there, and then it continues. And little by little, piece by piece, they begin to keep themselves from the house of God. It begins small steps slowly but it's a pathway towards apostasy and though I understand and you I've been here long enough now I understand there are ways in which we may be providentially hindered from coming to the house of God regularly I get that I don't keep a rule I don't call you if you miss a Sunday I don't do that I'm talking to you very generally here and may the Lord apply it to your hearts as he sees fit 
But Hebrews 10 makes it clear that the pathway to apostasy begins with an abandonment of the local church. And we are living in a day when people and their practice have put the church way, way, way down their priorities. There are so many things that are more important than being in the house of God. That's a bit severe. You've been away too long. It's the facts, folks. Anything else in life is more important than the church. I'll say, well, preacher, you're, you're putting the church in front of Christ. No. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. His commandments are here in Hebrews chapter 10. They're here and they're expressed in love and encouragement one for the other. Again, it's not about, it's not about me being a pastor and being happy because, because people are here. And the, it, it's just it's what the Bible says. This is vitally important as a witness in the world and for our own spiritual good. And you've got to examine yourself. Where does the church sit in your priority list? Where's first, second, third, fourth place? Again, young people, please, I beg of you, get this clear in your mind right now that when you marry and you decide to live here or there or somewhere else, that you know in your heart we're going to find a church where Christ is preached and we're going to give ourselves wholeheartedly to that church. Sport will not get in the way. My job will not get in the way. Nothing will get in the way because I am a worshiper of Christ. And I'm not going to forsake the Lord and fall after Balaam. You get alone with God, please. You may be very faithful right now, but your heart is itching. You're discontented. You're struggling to know what's going forward in the will of God. All looks good externally, but you know your heart's not right. Get before God. Turn to Hebrews 10 and say, Lord, let me be one who draws near in the house of God in prayer, who draws near in truth and worship, who holds fast the profession of my faith and considers one another and doesn't forsake the assembling ourselves together. And if you're here, perhaps, and you're already on that slope towards apostasy, I'll preach, I'm a Christian. Did you not preach this morning on the Lord's table about how, how there's no condemnation? I'm just taking Paul's words here. I believe both. Guard your heart. If you see the seeds of apostasy in your heart, you've got to deal with it quickly. Put it out. So you can sing with all of your soul. The hymn we sang before we preached the word today, Christ for me. Christ for me. We'll come back next time to God's revelation to Elijah. I'd simply say that the fact that God comes to Elijah proves that God accepts Elijah's words. In fact, Elijah is empowered by God's visit to repeat the very same things. It's a serious thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Eternal God and Father, we look to Thee. We pray, O God, again for Your help and Your grace and the proper application of the Word of God. Pray, O Lord, that anything that's not of thyself, will be cast away and dismissed from people's minds. But those things that are according to your will, we pray, O God, they will be driven into our souls, that none of us will be tempted to turn away from thee. Dear Father, I can say, thank you for this church. 
Thank you for a place where we can worship with those of like precious faith. We pray, O oh God, you'd help us to see this place as of great importance in our walk with thee and in our daily life. Help us to love one another and encourage us in the things of God today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.